Welcome to the Keon Sports Podcast. Our guest today, Sam Houston of WWF Lore. Sit back, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Up next, Sam Houston. Welcome to the Keelan Sports Podcast. Thank you for joining us. As you've seen over the course of the last several weeks, we have had on one big name after another. Today, Sam Houston joins us, and we couldn't be more excited for this. Without any further ado, let's get into the phone now. Up next, Sam Houston. On the hotline now, Sam Houston joins us on the show, Keon Sports. Welcome to the show, and how are you today? Hey, man, thanks for having me, first of all. It's uh, my pleasure. I uh, love being out here talking to your listeners and everything. I'm doing great today, you know. Uh, the good Lord woke me up and gave me a day that was not promised to me again, yet again. So I give him all the glory, honor, and praise. And make the best out of whatever I can, whatever I can get my hands into. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and speaking of that, I wanted to start uh, right away with you. Um, you know, you're you're part of this here, which I think is really unique, fulfilling the needs uh, during this COVID-19 crisis. I know, um, you know, you're taking PayPal uh, suggestions and, and donations right now to wrestlinglegend2020 at gmail.com. What can you tell us about the work you're doing with fulfilling the needs? Well, uh, okay. Well, since this COVID and everything... And actually, fulfilling the needs actually started out a few years before. Uh, I was on my way to WrestleMania in Dallas, Texas, to sign autographs. And the Red River had breached the levee and it flooded uh, northeast Louisiana out, closed the interstates down and everything. Well, I ended up with, I was a scaffold builder at the time offshore. So I had harnesses and flotation vests with me. And I helped emergency services that night, and we rescued 11 people. Their, their houses were all on stilts, but the basin had flooded out. The, the one lady, my friend Teresa, who was actually the person all this got started for, Teresa was hanging on to her roof. Now, her, the water line was four and a half feet on the inside of her house. She was hanging on to her roof water for taking. Her house was on 11 foot stilts. So, where all those houses were, were 16 feet underwater. Well, um, I went ahead, I left there, I went and I signed my autographs. I saw Teresa two years later, and she, she when I first met her, she was a cancer survivor. And uh, I helped her with FEMA when I drove back through. When I came back, I saw her two years later for Thanksgiving, and I drove her home to her house. She wanted to show her house off. I drove her home, and I pulled up to a house on stilts, 11-foot stilts, with a big staircase with a lady that doesn't have any legs. That's no good. Yeah, I, I really need a ramp. So we started raising money, fulfilling the needs, raising money for a ramp for her. Money, we raised about six hundred dollars. Oh, it was like five fifty or something like that. It was close to there. Anyway, uh, an ice storm hit uh, in up north Texas, north Louisiana, and, and did a lot of damage. Uh, her water heater went out, uh, and she her pipes burst. You know, PVC pipe with no insulation. They were sixteen pipes burst. Um, 
So I was able to, with the $600, I was able to uh, purchase a water heater and then fix all the, uh, all the piping. And then I took a truck winch. We took a truck winch and a loading cot dock pallet and some pulleys and some sign fence posts. And we, we fortified, we made her an elevator and a ramp, uh, an elevator, a homemade, you know, redneck elevator. Uh, <laughs> but it worked. It served its purpose. Um, and then I, I went to Habitat for Humanity with the video that I'd, I'd taken. And they were building ramps for uh, uh, the next parish over. This was in Louisiana. So parishes are like counties, y'all. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they were building ramps for people. Uh, and even though Teresa wasn't in that parish and she didn't meet the age requirements the lady cried and she told me she said sir you're an angel we're going to take it from here so uh habitat for humanity because the ramp was going to cost a little over thirty thirty two hundred dollars but and that hurt me that i wasn't able to build that ramp it really did you know i worked on my self-esteem and everything else and i was really um, doubting myself because you know I, everybody that everybody that sent any money to in for a project or anything like that has always received merchandise back. You know uh, I, I'm not asking if people want to help. Yes, I need their help. You know because I've got several projects I'm working on. But uh, and, and I'll send merchandise back. I mean, that's what it's, that's what I'm here for. You know, people want my autograph. Give me like some money. Let me help these people out. I'm not trying to like sit on a whole, whole bunch of cash or nothing like that. Anyway, I'm just trying to help people. Uh, well, we we got Teresa taken care of, and then uh, I get up here. I was uh, I went to a couple of months before all this shutdown stuff. I did an event in Ohio. And that went really good. I mean, people, I was the only top name on the card. Uh, they hadn't had an event that big, a box office that big in over three years. People were hanging from the rafters. It was awesome. A big, I mean, it was a big shot in the arm for me. So they were having me back. But I wanted to talk to this preacher in the Carolinas about uh, a television show where we help people. And uh, so I, I drove from Louisiana to Charlotte to fly out to go to Ohio and then come back and speak with this preacher. The governor started shutting everything down right when I got to Charlotte. I couldn't go. I did go talk to the preacher and we talked about the television show. We've already shot the first show to be aired. Um, anyway, so we've got this show, uh, but everything, everything started shutting down. Well, I didn't have any, uh, anything. I didn't have anything, you know? Um, but I started doing whatever I could to help whoever I I, I could. I've put in culverts, I've cut trees, I've painted houses, I've done it all. Uh, and that's a lot of that's been helping to get me by, but I've also been working on people that are disabled and on fixed incomes, uh, are people that are needy. Um, the one lady down in Wingate, North Carolina, her name is Kay, Kay Long. Um, I put her a, a, a wooden wall, uh, uh, like a, uh, the floor. They don't always get up to let the dog out to go to the bathroom, so the dog is really basically ruined ruined when you come into the door. So I uh, put a new, I guess, foyer or a little uh, landing there, hardwood landing.
sanding floor, cut the carpet back and refinish that. Uh, rebuilt two of her bathroom sinks, uh, one toilet, uh, taking care of some other water leaks for some windows. Her easy lift, she hadn't been upstairs in her house in two years. Her easy lift chair wasn't working until we took care of that. So I've been working on people's houses to help them out as much as I can. A lot of the materials are getting donated. A lot of the materials are used materials. It just takes a long time to pull nails out and take screws out them before you reuse something. But as long as there's no rot, rot in it and, it and its integrity is not uh, uh, the, the integrity is not breached, you can use it again. So that's what I've been working on. I've got a lady in Marshville, North Carolina, and the one in Monroe, North Carolina, and uh, one in Wingate, North Carolina. So I've been working on those, those three homes for the last couple of months. Yeah, it's just repairing them and, and getting them back together, cutting out one of them. The bathroom, I had to redo the bathroom because of the black mold um, had overtaken it. So, you know, but these are people, these people, you know, they, they couldn't do it themselves. They don't have the money to pay for anybody to help them. And I, I want to help people. I mean, that's what I'm all about. I mean, I've had a blessed life, Vince. I mean, I've been around the world eight times. I've opened up for the Who. I was almost, I've, been, I've stepped in the ring with countless world champions. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I've done it all. I opened up for the Who. I've wrestled just everywhere. I was almost eaten by cannibals twice. Um, just everything. I've had an incredible life. And if this is what I can do to give back and to get people to get behind what I'm trying to tell them, the, my main point and my main reason for living is to preach the word uh, and tell you how I was helped by the Creator. And he saved my life many times. I'm not worried about your checkbook. I'm not worried about your, your wall. I ain't worried about none of that. What I'm worried about is your salvation. Are you right with God? Because if I don't see you before, I'd like to see you in heaven. But the, the, I can give you all kinds of trinkets along the way. But the best thing that I could ever lead you to or give you is eternal life. You were saved, like and you were saved when you accepted. You said you you were saved when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What led you to that revelation? Well, uh, well, first of all, I mean, I've had a long. I mean, uh, <laughs> like I said, it's been a long, healthy journey or a journey for me. I, when I was seventeen, I had my tonsils taken out. The doctor messed up, and I died on the table. I was dead for two minutes. I spent two weeks in a coma, in intensive care, having out of body experiences all the time. Everything. It was just. It was <laughs> blow mind blowing. Um, I had a voice tell me to go back. It wasn't my time. Uh, you know, when I was 12 years old, we'd go to the Parkview Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And, yeah, when I was 12 years old, I walked down the aisle and, and I said, the, you know, I uh, confessed to my sins and I accepted the Lord in my heart and everything. But I did that for the free donuts, you know. Wasn't really thinking what I was doing. And it wasn't until later in life. Uh, and I was, I was in a bad way. But I saw everybody come out of the church and they were all happy and smiling. It was kind of raining. And this is the night I wrote the song. Well, that night, I was sitting there, it was starting to storm and everything. And when everybody come out of the church, I walked across the street to the church and I talked to Brother Joe Patterson. And he led me, he led me to the Messiah that night. And uh, it really helped me out a lot. But I was still lost in myself. 
I still wanted to do all the things I wanted to do, you know? I, had, I wasn't giving it all up to him yet. <clears throat> and uh, so I asked him in my life. I continued to drink. I continued to live my life and do what I wanted to. Uh, but uh, that night I wrote the first three verses of my song that's on YouTube. It's called Salvation. Oh, uh, yep. years went by, this, that, and the other. Uh, in 1999, I tried to give, I gave up all the drugs and all that, and tried to give it all up. Okay, the one thing I couldn't beat was alcohol. And for, damn, for, for nine years there, you know, even though I got away from all the drugs and stuff, I couldn't get away from the alcohol. I couldn't beat the alcohol. Of course, you're in Louisiana, so there's a daiquiri shack, a drive through daiquiri shack on every corner. You know? Sure. And anyway, 2009, I got pulled over. I had an argument with my girlfriend. Got pulled over. I had, had one drink. And uh, they pulled me over for an improper lane change. Oh, gosh. I bonded out of jail. I went and I checked into a two-year-long rehab center called Cinecore, which that is like, oh, wow. That's way out there, rehab. But anyway, I was there three months to the day. And uh, I went to court to pay a ticket for an improper lane change. They hit me with fourth offense DWI. I told the district attorney, I said, I've never had a third offense DWI, and you hit me with a fourth. And the DA told me, if, it was, if I have to redo the paperwork, he goes, I'm going to hit you with a habitual offender act, and you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. Or you sign off on the fourth offense, which makes my second felony. How can I have two felonies if I've never had the first felony? You know, so it's all, it's all a mess up thing. Um, but I, I signed off on it. I took the, uh, the 10 years. I did five years in prison. Actually, more than that now when you, if you put all the time together. Um, but the whole time I worked on myself. I did everything I could to, to work on myself. Because I'm a wrestler, they put me on, uh, on uh, uh, oh, they said I was a security threat. So they put me on murderer's row when they first put me in there. That's the worst of the worst, man. There were 39 of the worst people in the parish in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My, my cellmate uh, shot a guy like three times, poured a gallon of gas on him, and lit him on fire. Uh, when I first walked in there, well, this one fella comes up to me because my name is Matthews. I killed three white women. What'd you do? I looked him dead in the eye, and I told him I made an improper lane change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, thank God for my size. I, I didn't get in any trouble or anything like that at first little, little while until one of the deputies started uh, uh, taking her. Oh, he had found some stuff on the Internet, found out who I was, and he started circulating that around the jail. So I had gotten like seven altercations in one week, but I never struck anybody, so I, 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 didn't, I never got rode up. Now, I did grab them, and I did snatch them, and I thank Dean Malenko for his Texas Cloverleaf a lot of times because that helped me out a lot. But, you know, I, uh, anybody that came up went down. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's that simple. But I found something in myself while I was, while I was locked up, and that was a, a desire to go one step further with everything I do. I wanted to be better than one of you, better coming out than what I was going in. You know, I realized that there's a place that society has 
they they like to put the people they don't want in their society, and that's called prison. And there ain't no rules. There ain't nothing. If somebody wants something, they're gonna come take it. You know, you get you get real, and you get real quick. You know, uh, been been through a lot, but oh gosh, you know. So my aim and my goal is to help people, and fulfilling the needs helps me help people. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a great mission to have. So I wanted to ask you, too, why did you follow, because um, we're going to talk a little bit more about your wrestling career here in a second, um, why did you decide to follow in your in your father's footsteps in the world of professional wrestling? Well, I was born into wrestling, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I was on the road. I was born while my dad was wrestling in Florida. <clears throat> my dad was a headliner, so every three or four months we were moving to a different part of the country. I lived in 21 different parts of the country, not not the same city at 21 different houses, but out in different parts of the country from uh, Portland, Oregon, to my, you know, down to Tampa, Florida, out to L.A., to, to Omaha, you know, just everywhere. Every three or four months, we were going to the next territory. I lived in 21 places before I started first grade. So my, my life was basically on the road, and I was on the road with my father, so I was watching him and being emulated every night. I wanted that, you know? So when I was in the second grade, I started training to be a wrestler. I was going I was uh, going to the high school uh, wrestling camps in the summer and wrestling in there, and then whenever I would go to a meet or to work out, because of my dad... All the amateur wrestlers, Herb Calvert, Jim Shields, uh, Art Cruz, all these guys that had amateur backgrounds, Jay Clayton, they would come, Danny Hodge, they would come to our wrestling meets. My coach, who was an amateur wrestler and also like an English professor uh, or English teacher, he's sitting there, he's an amateur wrestler, He's but he's an amateur. And I'm able to walk in with all these professionals, people that have exceeded and outdone him with NCAA titles and AAU titles and things like that. So he was getting the benefit because all of his boys were having the extra benefit or extra aid of all these great amateur wrestlers, you know, coming down the road. So, but I knew in second grade that I wanted to wrestle. I mean, my whole life I trained for it, of my whole upbringing. And then when I got my tonsils taken out when I was 17, I died on the table. I didn't eat food that year from April the 2nd to August 13th. I dropped from 230 pounds to 128 pounds. It took me a whole year to get my weight back up. And then when I wanted to get in the ring and work, my dad told me, I've already lost you once. I don't want to lose you again. And he told me this business is not for you. I worked out with George Weingroff. George Weingroff stretched me twice big time, but I gave him all I had, you know, and I kept coming back for more. So finally I left home uh, after working out with Weingroff, and I left home and went down to Florida, and Dusty gave me the name Sam Houston, uh, and that's how it all started. You know, interesting enough, too, um, you arrived in the WWF, Right around 1987 there. They're a big boom period at that time. That's really when they started to boom was in those mid-80s. What were your expectations coming into the WWF? What did you feel like Vince McMahon was going to do with your character? And what heights do you expect to reach? Well, 
Well, I'm going to stop right there, stop you right there and mm-hmm. stuff like that. First of all, when you're speaking and wrestling to me, uh, and blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that, we're talking about me, the man, who I am. I'm not a character. I'm not a gimmick. You know, I have, yeah, I'm a, uh, I wear cowboy stuff and stuff like that. But I'm not a character and I'm not a gimmick like that. I'm a wrestler first. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, character crap doesn't get over with people. It just doesn't. You know, I, I don't ever want to be considered a character. I wanted to be considered a wrestler because that's what I mean. My thoughts were that if, you know, if Vince knew what was good for him, I could turn in some, some, some outstanding matches for him, you know, and I did. Um, several, you know, a lot of times. But I was blessed for it all, too, so. But yeah. I had, you know, I was able to go to different places all over the world and stuff like that. You got to remember, uh, Vince hadn't been worldwide that long before I got there. You know, him and Crocker were basically on the same, they were on the same playing field when all that first started. You know, so it was new to all of us as to compare to what it used to be. Uh, expectations, I was just hoping they were climbing higher and higher and higher just like WCW was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you really did show up at a great time there. You had the natural talent, you know, obviously pedigree in your blood. And, uh, I mean, you showed it every time out. You were a part of the first ever Royal Rumble. That it was At that time, the first time they did it was on uh, cable TV. It was a 20-man Rumble. You know, next year would go on to be the pay-per-view. But you were a part of that first ever Royal Rumble match. Do you remember what you thought when you first heard the concept? Who explained it to you and, you know, explained it to everybody and said, hey, this is what we're going to try to do? And do you remember thinking it was going to work? Because now it's like one of the most popular things in professional wrestling. Yeah, I really did. I I really did think it was going to work. And what it did, it added a, uh, oh, uh, kind of added a swerve to a battle roll, but it made it better because, Instead of starting out with 20 guys and it's just a free-for-all, you're starting out with two guys. And then, so you, you've got two fishermen out there and they're throwing their hook, and you know, and, and, the, and then the people bite on that hook and then they're, they're involved in the match. Do you, under, you can kind of follow me? Yes. They get hooked instead of, instead of having so much confusion and so much going on. No, what they've done with the Battle Royal is they've made it a building process. You build it up to where there's so many members, people in the ring, and then all of a sudden it gets cleaned out, you know, and you can start back over again. You can build them all. It's, it's, it's a, a, I, I don't know. It, it just, to me, it, 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 was, it was a lot better. You know, because you can tell a better story. Usually, about a role is back in our day was you know guys that everybody just starts off and you know the big joke was oh you're walking around and you just grab a guy and you're choking him and you're like, oh what number are you okay see you later you know <laughs> just walking around the ring there's no rhyme or no reason to it you know yeah it gave it rhyme and reason and it gave it and it gave it um, oh gosh. Uh, intrigue you know you really kind of wanted to see it now yeah absolutely you know and, and you dream matchups would occur over the years and it, it really did become like you said a, you know a storyline the entire thing was you, you would see the story play out on tv and it was it was absolutely fabulous but i did want to ask you you were actually in one 
very, very important battle royal. Not the Royal Rumble, but an actual battle royal at, at WrestleMania that year. WrestleMania 4. Now, despite going out early that night, what was it like to be a part of your first WrestleMania? How great did it feel? And, uh, you know, just kind of memories of that day. Because it was a pretty unique day with the tournament. Yeah, well, the whole thing was wild, okay? It was like Starcade on steroids, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'd been on Starcade, you know, that's a big pay-per-view of the whole nine yards or closed circuit. Because you got to remember, they were starting with the closed circuit, but then the closed circuit deal didn't, I, I guess, didn't work out as well as the pay-per-view did. But I started doing the shows where, you know, they were do, having a show in Greensboro, simulcast, and with Kansas, the show in Kansas City and stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, WrestleMania is basically one step further from that. But you know, you, you're like, like, you like, well, like I gotta say, I mean, I was, I've been in pay per views before, but this WrestleMania, yeah, it was different because it was a whole week's worth of events, just about at you know uh, Trump Towers, and so I can say the president was my boss for two nights. Yeah, pretty much. You know, interesting thing too. Um, behind the scenes, there was there was the tournament. They were taking the belt off of Hulk Hogan and moving it to Randy Savage. Was that a big deal behind the scenes? That you know, because Hogan had been the face of the company for so long. Why do you feel like they made that move to Savage at that time? Why do I think they did to give Hogan a breather? They wanted to push another star for a little bit, give somebody else that spotlight. That way, when they, when Savage gives it back to Hogan, because you know it was going to go back to Hogan anyway. But when Savage gives it back, then then they've got two guys that were former champions. And if you notice after that, everybody started winning a belt. And then now they got, uh, like, you turn on Monday Night Raw, and 98% of the guys in there on the show are former world champions. But this guy's had it 16 times, while that guy's only had a four. <laughs> you know? He only won the belt four times, but this guy won it 16 times, 17 times, you know? Yeah. How many times is Triple H up to winning the belt now? Fourteen. Surpassed Flair's. Yeah, he'll surpass Flair pretty soon before it's all over. You know, question for you too. Ba- well, ba- I mean, back then too, because you mentioned some guys there, like you know, a John Cena or, or a, a Triple H, a Hogan, and a Savage, all guys with massive, massive belts. You were you were also put together pretty well. You were in great shape. Do you kind of feel though that back then, you know, Vince McMahon and maybe you know pro wrestling in general was geared towards featuring the bigger guys? Were you ever, you know, asked to use steroids or pushed that way? Or, you know, was it just kind of open? Oh, I got, yeah, I got on the roids for a while. Yeah, I was asked, but, you know, the office had, uh, the office had my brother come to me and have me have the talk, you know? Uh, but, yeah. Um, and then it's kind of like when I left in 91, um, Vince told me, so he pulled me back in the back and he said, Sam, you've done everything we've asked you to do here in the WWF. You know, he said, we ask you to gain weight. He said, even though you didn't want to get on the steroids, you did. He said, you know, we ask you to do this. And he said, we've asked you to go out there and do this for this guy. And this, you know, he said, you've always gone out there. He said, well, we're going to give you some time off and bring you back in three months. <laughs> I was like, nah, I'm going back to WCW. You know, I went back for WCW, and then I, then I faced some personal tragedies. Uh, you know, uh, my drinking and everything caused it all. And, and I'm the first one to say it's all my fault. Uh, I was married to the baby doll, the perfect kid, because of my my stupid 
stuff and everything else, you know, that got away from me. And that's probably my, the biggest regret in my life, uh, my family and my children. You know, um, not having them, not, it's, you know, the biggest regret is not being there for them. You know, but I was blinded by my addiction. Nicola did the right thing, and she's done a wonderful job raising our children. And I want to give her all the credit, all the love, and all the glory in the world for that. Uh, she's raised two beautiful, wonderful people in my daughters, and I'm so proud of them. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that, too. Well, I mean, that, that's the great thing, too, Sam. You know, you, you grow up, I guess we all kind of learn from our mistakes, but the best part of my life is having girls. Like, I do have two, you know, two daughters, such as yourself. Um, mine are four and seven years old, and I couldn't be happier. So for you, you know, I wanted I wanted to give you some time here and, and take as much time as you want. Um, both your daughters are very talented. You know, I heard one of them's in the world of music. Another one is in uh, possibly pro wrestling. You know, what can you tell us about the two of them, and uh, what are they doing that makes you so proud? Oh, uh, well, my, you know, they're following their dreams. My oldest daughter, uh, you know, she's just, she's an inch shorter than me. I'm almost, I'm 6'3", almost 6'4". She's just an inch shorter than me. Um, and she, but, you know, her love is not wrestling. Her love is music. And she, I mean, she's really good. I'm, I'm not a punk rock fan or anything like that, but I got to tell you, I listen to my daughter's songs and she's, she's a great artist, a good performer, and she writes her own stuff, much like I do. Uh, and she's a wonderful performer and she's got a, uh, one song called Sun Showers that I just love. Uh, she's on that Spotify, on YouTube and everything else under Micah Smith. And then my youngest daughter, uh, did follow in, uh, mom and dad's footsteps and she did start wrestling. She did get ring her name. She wrestles under the name Samantha Starr. She's done quite well on the independent circuit, very well on the independent circuit. Uh, hard work, dedication, everything else. Oh, I've taken her up there. Vince has met her. Uh, Stephanie, they've all seen her. They, they all know what she can do. I think I might have messed something up there. Aren't in it just broke, oh, got brought to light to me about the other day. Uh, I brought her up there, but they didn't have William Regal or Terry Taylor there to, to uh, watch my daughter for her, her tryout. Stephanie McMahon came up to me and, and she was living. She said, all you guys, all you guys, great workers, and you all had girls, you know? <laughs> and I already know why, yeah, I already know why Michaela is not up there. Samantha Starr is not up there because uh, Michaela, being a third-generation wrestler like Randy Orton, um, that's one step further than being a second-generation wrestler which is where Charlotte Flair and Natalia Knight-Hart and those girls seem to be. So they didn't want to overshadow their old ta older talent with something newer, basically. You know, uh, if, if I had a whole card of second-generation wrestlers, what stands out? Nothing. But if I only have one and I showcase that one, then it's a big deal. Does it make sense to you? Oh, that's great logic. That's perfect logic, you yeah. know. And I, I wanted to throw this. Yeah, I mean, and no doubt about it. You know, I've been a fan for 30-plus years. I've, I've talked with a lot of the boys recently, and they filled me with a lot. So, you know, every, everything you're saying is making perfect sense. I wanted to throw this out here, you know, for you. 
you know, here we are now. You mentioned WCW a couple of times. You had that first stint there in 91 a little bit. And I want I just want to throw this out there for our fans because I think this is vital. I think it says a lot about you, how they trusted you, and just really how talented you were. You know, your short time in WCW, that the first time around in 91, you wrestled Steve Austin, Ric Flair, Diamond Dallas Page. Well, Ar- WCW was actually Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. Well, yeah. And when Jim Crockett took over, Jim Crockett took over the Superstation, that's when the television show uh, dropped. Because Jim Crockett already had a WCW television show going on in the Carolinas with Mid-Atlantic. So WCW was actually WCW before 1991. I was there from, like I said, 84 to 86. 86 or, yeah, yeah, because I, I went in 86 or 87, I went to work for Watts and then up to Prevets. But my whole career was, uh, you know, beforehand, the first time was from 84 up to uh, 87. The second time I was there was 91. Right, and and I misspoke there. Yeah, and I, I humbly apologize. I misspoke because I looked at it back then as NWA. Like, I, I know everything was an affiliation of the NWA so I, I know, you know, it was when Turner came in and kind of flipped the switch, calling it WCW. But, yes, you are right. Crockett Promotions, it was, you know, for the most part, it was the same people. I just think it's great and unique and says a lot about you that they put you in the ring with those big names. They pulled the biggest swerve. Crockett, and, uh, Crockett Flair, and all of them pulled the biggest swerve on the NWA back then uh, when all that was going on. When they got the new belt made, okay, once a year, the NWA and they would divvy up the world champion's time, okay? Well, they got together and they divvied it up, and Crockett only had Flair for 17 days out of the whole year. 17 days to be in his home territory for this world champion. The rest of the year, he's going to be out everywhere else, but 17 days at home is what he gets. Well, Crockett said, I am the NWA. And Nelson Rowe was my tag team partner at the time, and Nelson Rowe had uh, the that world title made, uh, I, I believe, down in Houston, Texas, with a silversmith company that does Western belt buckles. And that belt, that original belt, so, and this is if, it, if what I'm told is true, was two hundred and twenty thousand dollars for that title. Mm-hmm. So on Saturday morning TV, they went out there, Flair had been the NWA champion, they go out there during an interview, Flair's out there with his NWA title, Crockett walks out, hands Flair the new belt, takes the old belt away, and then they made, they made Flair the WCW world champion. See, it was a slight of hand. And then they disbanded from the NWA and sent the belt back. Just incredible, incredible stuff. We wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. It's been our pleasure. You know, anytime we could go ahead and promote whatever you're going to be doing with the fulfilling the needs, uh, your daughter's careers, uh, like you said, your song Salvation. You know, there's never a time where, you know, you're always welcome on this show, and and then we'll talk and promote whatever you want. Is there any last messages you want to say to all the fans at home before we call it a wrap? Yeah, you know, okay, we're living in some crazy times. You know, and I'm not telling you, uh, you know, this, that, and the other. I'm not trying not to. Okay, I'm, I feel very strongly with my views because, oh gosh, just uh, so much is going on. You know, I want to, I want to remind all your listeners, please read the word. 
Get right with God. You're not promised tomorrow. Uh, every every breath you take is a gift. Um, you know, live the best you can. Give as much as you can to others. You don't have to give them money, but if you can give them kindness, shower them with kindness. Be there to encourage somebody. You know, make a difference in somebody's life. You know, like I said, I've been all over the world and done all kinds of things, you know, and, 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 and the Almighty put me there. You know, and you don't know what it feels like to be that person that sparks a good memory in somebody's life or be that, you know, be the, the person that brings that joy. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people, they the, the biggest crowd they ever perform or do something in is their church softball team or, or something. I've had 30,000 people scream my name to the top of their lungs. You know, um, I've brought joy to people. I, 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 you know, I, I do what I can to help people. I want to be an inspiration. I want to be a light. I want to be a friend. Um, and if you want to reach me, you can reach me now uh, with, with the two marketing guys I'm working with. You can reach me at Michael Sam Houston through Patreon. You can find me at Michael Sam Houston on Facebook. I'm a, a public figure, so everybody can go out. You, everybody can see my page. You can follow me at Sam Houston Brand on YouTube. Uh, they're also working on another YouTube channel. Uh, we have Sam Houston Fan Nation. For people that would like to get in contact with me through Facebook that, uh, that aren't friends of mine, you know, so you can follow me everywhere, just about everywhere. Right now I'm in the Carolinas, though. So I'm doing a whole lot of good for a lot of people and uh, just trying to give them my best. You know, be a, be a light. You know, Donna Fargo sang a song a long time ago, you can't be a beacon if your light don't shine. Well, I'm feeding my light, y'all. That's awesome. It's, it's incredible to hear. You know, and, and that's a great message. We cannot thank you enough. Uh, definitely want to give a shout out to Will Knight for facilitating and yourself. And guys, like I said, anytime you want to come back on the show, uh, feel free. I want to tell all the fans at home, go ahead, uh, email, you know, if you want to help out to the cause, um, you can email PayMail to wrestlinglegend2020 at gmail.com. And uh, Sam, from all of us at Keon Sports, we want to wish you the best of luck, and we'll talk to you real soon. You as well, sir. Thank you. So that was Michael Sam Houston. You guys remember him well from his days in the NWA. Don't dare call it WCW. But NWA, WWF, then the WCW, even though the same company, we get all that. All joking aside, that was a blast to have him on. One of my favorites as a kid. And uh, to hear how the Lord has touched his life, what is, has, has touched mine as well. You know, two beautiful daughters. Just amazing, amazing stuff. For Keon Sports, this has been Vince McKee. Everybody have a blessed day.